Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q, and you're listening to ML4Q a a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computing cluster answer questions about their role in the cluster, their research, and the future of quantum. In today's episode, I'm talking to Tommaso Calaco. He's the director of the Institute of Quantum Control at Forschungszentrum Jülich, professor of theoretical physics at the University of Cologne, and member of ML4Q. We will be talking about him starting to work on apparently useless science, which soon turned out to be the future of quantum. We will also talk about many synergies between theory and experiment, science and government, and academia, and rising startups in our field. All right, today it is my pleasure to welcome Tommaso Calaco on the ML4 Q&A podcast. He did his PhD in physics at the University of Ferrara, a postdoc in Innsbruck with Peter Zoller. Uh, then he was a senior researcher in Trento, worked for some time in Harvard with Michal Lucan, became a professor in Ulm, and now he's a director at the Institute for Quantum Control in Jülich and a professor in Cologne. Welcome, uh, Tommaso. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to be here. So um, we start with the podcast uh, uh, usually with a little bit of background to um, also explain to younger researchers, well, how you got where you are now. And uh, I, I read a bit into your, your work as a, as a PhD uh, researcher, and I saw that with uh, uh, um, Onofrio and Viola, you were working on sort of the general topic of decoherence, measurement and entanglement in superconducting qubits. Um, How, how was this time? Because it's sort of at a crucial time in the history of superconducting qubits. This was around the, the, the mid-90s to, to late 90s. It was basically just before the first superconducting qubit measured its Rabi oscillation. How, how was this time? Well, it was a time in which uh, I would uh, ruin my career by going into that because I was doing entirely useless physics, uh, which uh, no one serious would care about. Serious people would do high-energy physics. But at the time, you know, the only useful thing for your career would be high-energy physics. And why would you ever wonder about the foundations of quantum mechanics? It was philosophy. It had no practical implication. It was essentially hopeless. But so exactly. But I, I think this, this, this work sort of so when you when you then noticed in, in <clears throat> around uh, 1999, 2000, there was the result of Nakamura. Um, of, of, of showing like a, a quantum bit made out of a superconducting circuit. How, how did you feel when you, when you saw this? Were you surprised or was it natural to you? Well, I should say that when I saw that, and I, I also when I saw the, uh, the work on ion trap quantum computing by Peter Zoller, which was a few years before, I called Roberto Nofri, who you just mentioned, and I said, look, this is the future. We have to go there. And he said, forget it. You know, it will never happen. Um, and actually, and you know, Both positions were well-founded because it was a time in which, as you said, you know, coming from the study of this macroscopic phenomena uh, in, in quantum systems, for, from a purely fundamental point of view, uh, I mean, the ability of manipulating those systems evolved in such a way that they could start to be used. You could manipulate those individual degrees of freedom. And then it became clear that you could make technology out of it. So for me, it was really uh, like, uh, you know, really a revelation. And I knew that I wanted to do that because it was like playing my life all my life long with Lego blocks. And being allowed to do that would be a fantastic dream, which after all has come true. So, so I, I would say maybe, so you, you came to it from both angles. There's this philosophy angle of, of thinking, ah, I have this, this uh, a physical system and maybe, maybe I can actually uh, encode information there and maybe nature allows me to, to sort of have a quantum 
quantum information uh, and, and, and manipulate it, but then the other really to, to do something with it, uh, the, the aspect of, of you know, uh, uh, actually applying this. Uh, there was a little bit of both in, in your research there. Um, in Europe, I think traditionally there's been more focus in the beginning on foundational aspects. Like That is true. In fact, the um, entrepreneurial spirit of saying, let us make something, let us make something which people will use, you know, uh, has been regarded in the early days as like a kind of second class physics, not, not the noble theory, so to say, not the noble investigation. But I must say that, you know, for me, the, the, the main mentor which brought me to this spirit, it is fascinating, it is interesting, and hence let's make something out of it, was really Peter Zoller, who was one of the initiators of this field, and really a, a trendsetter exactly in this direction. Yeah, so it's exactly like, it's, it's, it's actually remarkable. Sometimes, you know, now uh, a lot of the big developments in the field uh, Uh, with with Google's quantum advantage experiment and experiments in, in China and so on, I recently moved to to America and China as like really big players. But it's it's fair to say that um, this this initial spark of uh, how you can make a quantum computer from ions came from Peter Zoller in in Europe and from Ignacio Sirac, right? Exactly, and the, the reason once again was this very strong, very deep expertise which was and still is present here on really understanding the basics of quantum systems and how you can play with them combined with this, I could say, entrepreneurial spirit. It's not by chance that Peter Zoller, at the end uh, of, of all this long period that you mentioned, um, he is one of the founders of AQT, Alpine Quantum Technologies. And so this combination of we deeply understand the foundations and we can make something out of it, um, really, you know, is something which really came out of Europe and still a lot of the ideas are here. And this is among the reasons why we really believe, and we may come to, to that later, that we have an excellent opportunity, not just to leave all the economic developments outside of Europe. Yes. Uh, so um, just just a bit, a bit going back to the foundational questions, do you keep up With, with these developments? Is this something that still interests you or uh, are you more now focused on really just making quantum computers work? It is something which still fascinates me. For instance, like a, a few weeks ago, there was a, a workshop uh, here in Bonn where Seth Lloyd participated from, from MIT, which was focused on some very, very foundational aspects. Um, I am engaged in sort of conversations with different people, including with artists. On, we also have some art projects on foundations of quantum mechanics. Um, even though, of course, the bulk of my time now has to be uh, sort of devoted to, to making these things and the, more the engineering, the less noble side of that. Yes. But um, so from do you think that by accident, by making bigger and bigger quantum computer prototypes, we will discover some new uh, insight into sort of the nature of uh, the transition between quantum and classical physics? Well, actually, I very much hope so. And for me, this is still one of the main motivations. In fact, we might come later to speak about my activities in quantum control nowadays. For me, you know, I came to, to develop the, the um, concept that the transition between microscopic and macroscopic world is not a static one in the sense it does not matter just how many elements I have per se, but it's a matter of complexity of preparing the dynamics that it takes to control a system into getting 
to a Schrodinger cat. We do not see a Schrodinger cat, not just because it would collapse very quickly, but because we will never have it in the first place, because for making it, not even God could have time to do that, because it would take much, much longer than the age of the universe to make such a thing. Yes, by, by the Schrodinger cat, you mean like an entire cat that is really in a superposition, something with uh, uh, 10 to the, I don't know, 20 something Exactly, atoms. exactly. Yeah. And the, the reason why it is not possible to do it, according to what we found out from control theory, is that for preparing it with macroscopic means, then, you know, you, it would take an enormous amount of time. Now, a quantum computer might be different because we, if we are able to make it, we may be able to manipulate all the individual parts of it. So we might be able to create some big entangled state. And again, exactly as you said, this would have some very profound also philosophical or foundational implications. And this is still something which is very much driving me and driving the part of research on many body quantum systems and control, which we do in my group. All right. So exactly. Let's focus on your time moving to Innsbruck. I, th I think, by the way, it's remarkable that you sort of started out in the north of Italy and then uh, went to Innsbruck, which is not so far. And then uh, so you for, for a while in your career, you really stayed in one area, right? That that. That was influencing, I guess, a little bit as well, how, how you chose your... Oh, yes, absolutely. Because the fact is that my wife, uh, who now is a colleague here at the University of Cologne, which is why we moved so far north, at the time was teaching piano in, uh, in a music school in the place where, uh, where we both were born, which is in the Alps. And so there was only so far away I could go. Uh, and Innsbruck lied within this radius. So it was, I guess, a lucky coincidence. Yes. So, uh, and you went to Innsbruck and maybe I'm, I'm getting this wrong, but I think what you, what you did is you, so Peter Zoller had already worked on, on trapped ion quantum computers and sort of invented ways of how to um, make a quantum computer from trapped ions. And you worked on, on neutral atoms there, or is this? Yes, <clears throat> because neutral atoms was a um, sort of a subsequent platform which was in being investigated in parallel with superconducting qubits, of course, which, as you reminded, at the end of the of the 90s, started getting some, some important breakthroughs. And um, the nice thing, I should say, is that for many years, this neutral atom quantum computing uh, was remaining some sort of, uh, you know, general idea, but not yet really realized. And only recently, the amazing development of Rydberg atoms uh, uh, led to the fact that now, you know, among the most competitive platforms, there are also neutral atoms. And in fact, the machine that we are going to buy uh, in Jülich in our infrastructure for quantum computing and simulation is based on neutral atoms. And so this is sort of, again, crowning of a, of a dream, because who would have said that this is sort of, you know, playing with just some ideas with atoms, then, you know, developed into some, some real machines that you can now use. This is, this is also, you're, you're a little bit taking, uh, uh, taking away things that I already wrote in, in my notes. So in, indeed, you could say that the neutral atoms, um, so the ideas started in the, in the early 2000s, but indeed it took a long while. But now I would say it's fair that it's the maybe the most fast-growing quantum computer hardware in terms of number of qubits yes. growth uh, that, that we actually, have at the point. Yes, that is actually an accurate statement. How, how similar is the current neutral ion quantum computer to the things that you thought about uh, uh, almost 20 years ago? Uh, pff, amazingly similar, actually, yeah? Because the, the uh, sort of the quantum gates which are um, uh, used are the ones which, again, you know, Zoller 
and co-invented uh, several years ago. I was partially involved in the in the development of that uh, for the atomic, molecular, and optical uh, uh, physics side. Um, and and by the way, also with superconducting qubits, the gates which are being developed are very much in line with what was conceived 20 years ago. Um, and actually, also the ideas of having many atoms, you know, in these optical lattice structures, individually manipulated, which can be used for quantum simulation, is you know very much in in line with that. The difference is that now people are able to do that. But I remember, I still remember when Immanuel Bloch. Uh, realized for the first time, uh, uh, and it was a couple of years ago after Zoller proposed that uh, the the Mott insulator transition with you know a quantum register of atoms in individual optical lattice sites. I remember Peter storming my office and saying, "Can you believe it? They made it." Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. I think sometimes is it fair to say that the Immanuel Bloch work on on the optical lattices maybe um, is a little bit underrepresented in the hype compared to because i think it is fair to say that they actually made experiments that are very very hard to simulate uh, on classical computers as well this is a very accurate statement again that you made in fact the only uh, picture taken from a scientific paper among the eight slides that i had uh, at my disposal to show to commissioner oettinger to convince me him to give us uh, the first billion uh, the only scientific picture was from a paper by manuel which showed for the first time the first hint that a quantum machine could go beyond a classical machine. It was not yet, it was not called quantum advantage, but in fact, in a way it was. And it is really much, very much underhyped because it is not the style of our researchers on this side of the ocean uh, or the Urals, as you prefer to say it, you know, depending on which, which direction you are looking, uh, not to overhype things, but indeed, you know, practical quantum advantage, even more than just the academic quantum advantage by Google and by the Chinese Academy of Sciences has been achieved. We had a, a, a review meeting of our flagship four weeks ago in which it was claimed that now we do have really practical quantum advantage from quantum simulators. It was announced by Manuel Bloch. He really is, you know, a giant, a tower in yeah, this it's, field. It's, uh, I, I think I, I just <coughs> find it interesting because this experiment is very technical and this explanation of many body localization and so on it's it's a bit more technical than um, let's say just uh, the big statement of quantum advantage. So maybe I think the the reason why it didn't have such a big impact on the entire community was was or oh, no on, not on the community it didn't have such a big impact um, in like public opinion that it made the New York Times or something is is really that it's maybe it's maybe a point of selling it. Yes, <clears throat> yes, it's maybe a matter of communication. And this is one of the reasons why I think that what we are doing here today, like communicating, is the right thing to do. Yes. So, okay, let's, let's, uh, maybe uh, you also worked a little bit with Misha Lukin and I think in Harvard, and I think it's, it's quite an interesting thing to very quickly discuss. Uh, he is a theorist turned experimentalist and he has been like involved with almost um, any complicated experiment from the atoms to time crystals with NV centers. How did you? How did this time influence you? Well, uh, it was uh, very strongly consolidating uh, this because uh, Michel Looking is also someone who, very much like Peter Zoller, is really and uh, as you said, even more strongly combining and merging a theory and experiment because he makes experiments himself in this spirit of you know deeply understanding and using things. In fact, he also founded a a startup on uh, um, you know neutral atom based quantum computing and simulation 
And this was uh, had uh, also a very deep impact on me. In fact, you know, uh, the jump to a professorship, which happened right after that, was partially determined and, and sort of supported by this. And it was also, I would say, a lasting impact because we still have a, I still have a, a Harvard affiliation, you know, uh, you know, remaining, uh, uh, of course, unpaid affiliation after these many years. And this led, for instance, a couple of years ago to the realization of the fattest Schrodinger cat, which mankind had ever created up to that point. So we, we were doing a 20 qubits uh, um, GHZ state, which was one and a half fatter than the previous cat by Rainer Blatt. Of course, Rainer Blatt then overtook us again because he has a very fat quantum computer. And so he, you know, <coughs> he was beating us again. So the record, the world record lasted for maybe, you know, slightly more than one year. But it is enough for me. And that is a sort of good satisfaction also thinking about the, you know, far away time long ago when I was dreaming about making such and such things a reality. So um, let's talk about the core of your research quickly. <clears throat> Is it fair, like, I would say that you are a quantum control theorist. Is this something that you identify with? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, one of the things uh, which I'm doing is quantum control theory. And then another thing which I'm doing uh, in my uh, spare time is quantum hype control. But I know that we might come back to that later on. Um, so looking at a system and thinking about what are the parameters experimentalists can control and then telling them how to do it, is this like a... a is this difficult and how, how, how easy is it to communicate with the experimentalist and convince them that you can add value? Well, <clears throat> in the beginning, it was very non-trivial. Uh, in the beginning, you had to beg experimentalists uh, for their time in the, in the experiment to you know, try out our methods. And one reason for that was also that uh, I'm like uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago when I started working on this, it was not yet so essential to go from, you know, uh, 1% error to 1.01% to 0.01% error. Uh, I mean, because, I mean, the, 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 uh, the capability was not yet there and also the need was not yet there to build quantum computers. So it was kind of more, on one end, some academic uh, uh, experiment. On the other hand, it was not really very noble theory because you would get just a quantitative improvement in things. But now the situation has changed because this exactly this kind of improvement, getting to the threshold of error, which is necessary for quantum computers, has become a central question. And so this is needed everywhere. And so it's kind of the reverse. A lot of experimentalists coming and asking whether we could please, you know, calculate their, their experiment to make that, uh, that better. How, how important is the theory to just find the <coughs> fundamental time limits? Like if I come to you with, with my experiment, um, is it usually possible to say, well, this way of doing things will limit you to, to this number? Because that's also like trying a very important number, right? Yes. And this is interestingly and amazingly, this is possible to predict theoretically only in very simple systems like a two-level system or a very localized system. When you have, you know, delocalized systems or multi-level systems, more complexity, then you do not have the possibility to calculate this estimate. And the only way to achieve an estimate of that is just heuristic by trial and error, by using the most sophisticated control mechanisms and methods that you have and try to see how much you can push. And that when you hit a hard wall, you cannot improve anymore, then you know <clears throat> there is the limit that I've reached. So it's, it's actually not super easy for a given quantum computer technology to really predict performance without trying it out, I would. So, so we need both. On the one hand, theory to 
push for the best, but also experiment to just try where the limit currently exactly. is. Exactly, exactly. This is at the core of this intertwining between theory and experiment, which is from this great tradition of the uh, you know great colleagues and mentors that I mentioned before. And this is also what lies at the core of what we are doing exactly in between. We sit somehow with our activity in the neck of the hourglass in which, you know, the basis is, <clears throat> you know, many experiments and also now startup companies on quantum hardware, you know, and there is a lot of activity on quantum software and this quantum control or what we could call quantum firmware is in between and actually everything has to go through it, but there is not so much activity. It's combining and connecting those two sides. Um, just very quickly, can you explain the difference between open and closed loop control? Yes, open loop control is what I call the plug and pray method. Uh, so you plug your algorithm, you uh, say, okay, it will work, and then you uh, plug it into your experiment and you pray that it works and you have no way to improve somehow. I mean, either it works or not. And closed loop is I try with a guess and then I measure what the system, the experiment tells me, and based on the outcome, I say, okay, let's try in a slightly different way. And I keep improving in a cycle, which then takes into account what the system is telling me and has a then higher chance of success. Yes. So now I'm, I'm, I'm actually an experimentalist, so sort of your, your, uh, uh, gener like similar to your, most of your customers. And I, I find what is, <clears throat> what is remarkable for us is that, um, of course, when we do this closed loop control, where we look at what comes out and then we try again and we, you know, you, you try to actually make a guess based on, on, on what you tried before. One of the problems we have is, of course, noise. And uh, I think for us, it's, it's really funny, like there's very good optimization algorithms that are very sophisticated and will find you um, the best way from, you know, from a landscape quite quickly. But most of them sort of get screwed up by noise, right? So how do you, how do you advise experimentalists? Should we use stupid optimization algorithms or should we try to go for more sophistication? So sophistication helps uh, uh, countering the effect of noise, but you also have to develop specific algorithms. So what we did, our uh, uh, chop random basis algorithm, which is the basis of, of uh, a lot of these developments, um, uh, can build in the effect of noise. As a matter of fact, in one of the experiments that we did with Emmanuel Bloch, again, on a multi-insulator transition, um, where we wanted to, to minimize the number of defects in this quantum register, you know, in the beginning, we provided them with a, a control pulse, which was based on a number of atoms which they gave us, which was 20. And then it didn't work because of noise, because they said, oh, we're sorry, there is noise. They could be, you know, fluctuating 10 plus minus 10% atoms in there. And we said, okay, you know, why didn't you tell us before? Because then we redid the optimization, building in this uh, robustness and tolerance on average. And then we provided them a different pulse shape, which then worked. So it can be built in. Uh, there are methods for doing that. Also, machine learning can help a lot in doing that. And um, in the end, if you use these more sophisticated methods, you obtain more robustness, which then works in the experiment. That's uh, uh, the mission of what we are developing now to make it possible under real conditions. So what you are describing is, in essence, uh, to some extent, a digital, digital twin, right? That um, at least from the theory side, it's also useful to build something that sort of behaves like a small scale version of the experiment. Yes, that's the that's to get to the initial guess. So as much as we can describe, we can model in the system, then we will use and we start to, we, with an initial guess. But then 
to further refine it, we can replace the twin with the actual system and let the actual system, in a way, if you wish, calculate its own behavior or give us information about its behavior, and then we can improve based on that. So it's a combination of the digital twin and after we reach a certain level of refinement, re replacing it with the real system and moving forward with the improvement. But then I have one question that has really been bothering me, like as an experimentalist, let's say we, I mean, for, for sure now at the moment with a few qubits that I work on, you can make a sophisticated digital twin and you can probably get uh, uh, most of the things right. However, as you move to more complicated experiments, this approach will, will fail undoubtedly because we cannot uh, simulate a large scale quantum system uh, very well. Um, so do you think there is like an optimum sort of, uh, like how, how, will, how will we approach this problem uh, to find sort of the optimum size that we still use to simulate and how, how do we actually then scale up to systems that can no longer be simulated? Well, <clears throat> you can scale up based on scaling considerations, like you, you understand the dependencies on, of your you know, control methods and, and, and control pulses on the size of the system and you scale it up. That's one approach to that. Another approach is, you know, pushing as far as you can get, maybe even with using supercomputers, we are already, you know, going in that direction. And then, you know, taking the quantum system and scaling up further. The key point is that you need efficient optimization algorithms because otherwise you cannot keep up any longer with the complexity of finding the pulse. Fortunately, it's possible to identify optimization methods which are still very efficient, actually exponentially efficient uh, uh, in, in the number of, of in, in the bandwidth of the control, even for increasing complexity of your quantum system. And, and we, we are also studying this theoretically in terms of information control, bandwidth of control and complexity of the system in order to see how far we can push this. But this is actually a current research problem. So uh, exactly, it actually fits well to, to my next question. So quantum optimal control theory, since the days that you started, where you had simple algorithms, that uh, simple Hamiltonians that people could still um, simulate uh, uh, relatively quickly and without pushing the boundaries of computation, um, has evolved now to a point that machine learning is coming in, um, that actually we're really pushing the boundaries of, 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 of computation on on. on GPU clusters, supercomputers, and so on. Uh, how does how do you keep up with these advances? Uh, oh well, it requires a lot of uh, interaction, discussions, uh, you know, following papers, and also uh, this is the main focus of the uh, the, the um, optimal control subgroup, which I am creating uh, in my in my group, just by hiring also hiring specialists in machine learning and application applications to that beyond what I can possibly, uh, you know, cover with my own competences. So yes. it's really building teams because the, the whole field actually is so much expanding that, uh, you know, compared to the early days in which you could keep up with all the papers which came out, now it is essentially impossible. And so enlarging the team and, you know, bringing together competencies is necessary as it is happening in other multidisciplinary fields of science and, and, uh, and research. Yes. And uh, okay, then, then uh, one, one, one last question on this overall topic. Um, Julich is soon going to have actually a plethora of quantum computer prototypes. Can you list, uh, give a rough estimate, like a rough list of which ones are going to be there and how is it going to change your research? So, <clears throat> yes. So at the moment, um, uh, uh, it was started with a, 
uh, D-Wave Quantum Annealer, which had been uh, initiated several years ago. Now what is coming up is again the, uh, the um, Rydberg Atom Quantum Simulator from the uh, French company Pascal. Uh, there is also the Open Super Q machine, which is a superconducting quantum computer built from the flagship project Open Super Q. And now the follow-up Open Super Q Plus is in the process of being approved. Um, and we are, of course, discussing with further companies, including startup companies, including from our region, you know, in the context of this Ein Quantum NRV that you mentioned before, to uh, uh, en enlarge the offer. All right. So that and and uh, are you gonna? Um, so I guess if once you have these machines there. Um, is it going to be useful for a quantum uh, uh, um, optimal control group to actually, you know, sharpen your, your tools on different machines? Do you think it's going to change things for your group? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the we had uh, last week, the midterm review of OpenSuperQ and the presentation of new projects. And indeed, one of the uh, couple projects that I presented together with other colleagues is exactly about that. It's, uh, we could call it quantum hacking. So sort of playing and, you know, uh, modifying and really working at, at, uh, at hardware level with the new Pascal machine, including, so our contribution will be really improving the control there. As a matter of fact, Pascal is a startup, which is a spin-off of the flagship project Pasquans, in which my group is involved. And so we are already uh, collaborating with them. Actually, we sold them one license of our software from our startup. So there is already a tight integration. And the fact that the machine is coming here, also in the context of ML4Q, will imply a lot more opportunities for us all. All right. So we will have a, a short uh, sort of uh, lighter break with some quick either or questions where you, you know, we just, uh, so to, to, to get you started, uh, do you prefer Renaissance music or Italian opera? Oh, that's a very difficult one. Oh, my goodness. But I would say Renaissance music. All right. So, and as German cities go, do you prefer Ulm or Cologne? Oh, this is a very easy one. There is no company whatsoever. It's Cologne. All right. So the, the larger city is... Uh... Well, it's not, not just about the largest city. It's about, uh, you know, kind of the, the climate the, uh, of, you know, the, the uh, human interactions. And the openness and, uh, you know, this uh, sort of uh, um, really non-provincial flavor that uh, you can find. Here. I, th I think it's fair to say that Cologne is maybe the most Mediterranean city in, in, in Germany. In, that in is quite possible and it certainly contributed a lot uh, to, uh, to for us uh, coming here. You know, my wife for 10 years, she said, away from Germany, away from Germany, uh, <laughs> let's go away. And then she was one morning in Cologne and her opinion changed by a pie phase. It was not Germany, it was a Swabia. Huh. Yeah. So, okay, let's then, uh, do you prefer landscape-wise the north of Italy or the Rhineland? Oh, well, that's another <laughs> easy one. <laughs> so I'm sorry, but I didn't come to the Rhineland either for landscape or for weather. Yes. I should say that. <laughs> All right. Then uh, what is your favorite uh, uh, quantum hardware? Oh, it's, uh, uh, well, yes, it's uh, Rydberg Atoms. All yes. right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Um, and for the development of quantum computers, what do you think will be more important, venture capital or government funding? Uh, it will only, so in this case, I have to give a quantum answer, which is a superposition of the two, because without quantum entanglement between the two, or even classical entanglement, we are not going to make it. All right, and uh, uh, just... Quick, quick. Uh, how how do you think quantum? Do you do you think there will be more F, uh, more improvement from quantum startups or from the large scale research programs in big tech? 
uh, well uh, they need both they need each other so again it cannot be uh, one and, uh, uh, without the other i should say that uh, you know i think startups could make it even without the big tech certainly the big tech cannot make it without startups but both are going to be very important for you know achieving the goal what is a better flagship role model the graphene flagship or the human brain Uh, the quantum flagship. The quantum, okay. <laughs> Very easy. And do you believe that there will be useful um, NIST devices or will it be necessary to have quantum error correction to achieve practical quantum computing? Um, I am pretty sure that NISC devices will be uh, useful for quantum simulation and I am not sure whether we will have NISC quantum computers which will be useful. For this, we are still missing the arguments. This is an open research question, in my opinion. And uh, just a quick, I mean, predictions are hard, especially about the future, but the first commercially viable quantum computer, in what year will it be operational? Mm, commercially viable, if it is in the sense that, uh, you know, consumers or just user companies will, will buy it, uh, not before 10 years. Okay. And uh, do, do you prefer what? What is what will be more interesting, the quantum game of life or the quantum game of chess? Oh uh, well, um, I guess the quantum game of life uh, because well, I, I, I have a paper on that, so that clearly, I mean, I, I have a personal preference for that. And you know, in terms of cellular automata, uh, there is a lot of quantum cellular automata. There has been a lot of development, so I think that uh, that uh, uh, this uh, offers more sort of uh, possibilities in this sense. All right. So okay, we 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 get to the 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 a big a big block of 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 things that we will get to because besides being a, an active researcher and and a professor who is teaching and so on, you are also sort of a very important lobbyist in Europe for quantum technologies. So let's start. If we say a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of quantum computing, um, how how would you feel about uh, about uh, uh, this sort of beginning for for a quantum manifesto? Well, uh, uh, I feel very cautious. As I mentioned before, quantum hype control is very important. I see a lot of hype, especially from industry, but in some cases also from, from some colleagues, unfortunately. And this is the most dangerous, um, both in terms of you know, the credibility of our field, but also in terms of the credibility of science in general. And so uh, we have to be um, very cautious in only making statements that we can sort of uh, support with scientific evidence. And I am happy to report that whereas 10 years ago, at the time of the first failed quantum flagship attempt, uh, we had a meeting with um, a high-level politician in the European Commission who told us, I know you are very serious, but maybe you could do some hype for me. So that uh, can you, for instance, say that you can use quantum computers to solve the climate change problem? And we said no, and uh, you know because we didn't want to overhype, and so we stayed clear from that. Uh, but in more recent years, we had, as I mentioned uh, before, this uh, review meeting, the midterm evaluation of the flagship, and we saw that we systematically overdelivered and rather underpromised, and. Our promises were ambitious, but the delivery was even more than that. For instance, practical quantum advantage with quantum simulators. And I am very happy about that because it means that, you know, what we promise has, you know, some solid basis. That's the most important thing to avoid being haunted by the quantum ghosts. Yes. So, but at, nonetheless, you, you wrote the quantum manifesto and it really helped kick off the, the quantum flagship. Would you see yourself... Uh, uh, 
as a revolutionary because also there you talk of the the second quantum revolution not at all uh, i see since you you used the uh, um, music metaphors before uh, i see myself or ourselves much more like brahms than like uh, beethoven Uh, like Beethoven was looking forward and revolutionized everything. Brahms was looking backwards and also Bach, uh, all with B for some, some reason. But anyway, so they were looking backwards. So they brought something which was a great tradition to completion and to fruition. So when uh, we wrote the Quantum Manifesto, I was not inventing anything. I was just taking the uh, roadmap from our community, which existed since 10 years, and doing copy and paste. So I was a sort of summarizing the already existing collective wisdom and essentially saying nothing new. It's very important in these things to not saying anything new, but only things which are very solid and people already know. So, okay, um, we, we already went a little bit into this. So let's, let's maybe at this point then uh, talk a little bit about the, the quantum hype. Um, to what degree is it okay to promise too much to get funding for a project? To, uh, 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 well, maximum a zero degree and more likely to a negative number. <laughs> okay, so it is completely illegitimate and it is suicidal. Okay. And actually we don't do it. And I'm actually happy to report that what we deliver is more than what we had promised. Um, when lobbying for quantum technologies, what role do really high impact experiments mean? And by that I mean experiments that make it to, let's say, the New York Times uh, somewhere and maybe not front page but uh, uh, like experiments like the loophole free belt test uh, quantum supremacy or the Majorana uh, those experiments um, uh, this kind of experiments is very important because decision makers hear about that uh, and then they get an impression that uh, you know uh, they are right in funding this because there is some substance it is not just some you know, scientists, you know, some advocate for their, of course, every scientist will advocate their own field, but there is really some serious substance there because this is also something which reaches society. So this kind of, of aspect is an important validation, not just in terms of propaganda, but in terms of saying, okay, something is really happening there. But then on the other hand, I mean, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a very important thing to, to shape public opinion and also to influence decision makers. But you also have the backlash uh, when, for example, in case of the Majorana result, now there's a lot of discussion and, 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 and backlash that um, sort of this, this uh, uh, th there has been a little bit of misconduct in this field and maybe over-promising of this technology. Um, how problematic are these kind of uh, uh, developments uh, um, for uh for the field and and in in sort of having do they do they take away the positive effect or is it even uh is it even more than just taking away the the initial positive bump it is very strong damage uh, uh i was um organizing uh, five years ago uh, a workshop in the stoa the science and technology options assessment uh, um, uh, committee of the european parliament where uh, one of the protagonists uh, of this Majorana field, uh, the one who is now under investigation, um, came up and uh, he belonged to the country which at the time had the, the presidency of the Council of the European Union. Um, and he had a slide with a field of a wheat field and a blue sky and written, we will, with quantum computers, we will develop new fertilizers, we will address and solve the uh, world hunger problem. Uh, none of this happened. Uh, 
Uh, it took me three years to do damage control on that. Uh, this person is now no longer working for Microsoft. Um, and there is no Majorana research in the flagship. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, as I, like, there is a very, it's very important to do these experiments, but it really, we, we need to make sure as a community to act very responsibly because these kind of uh, uh, misconduct cases can have damage beyond just the immediate uh, absolutely group. and we we have zero tolerance for that and we this is the most precious the only precious value that we have is our reputation the reputation of our field the reputation of science this is what we guard with the most attention and strictness yes um just something that i personally think about a lot um there is a possibility uh, that quantum computing will not, you know, uh, uh, will not work, right? In the sense that uh, we are not sure, for example, it could be that there's classical heuristics which uh, may manage to get to all the quantum advantages that the quantum computer can. How, how, how often should we, should we say this to the public? I mean, we have some ideas of, of things that, that quantum computers can do that classical computers cannot but we don't actually have a lot of serious proof that classical computers could not ever do this, right? Yes, we have serious proof only in the case of quantum simulation, interestingly. Uh, and we have to communicate to the public every time we do that. We, and fortunately, now it starts being perceived by decision makers and also by industry, also at very high levels. So insisting on this, you know, every single time, every single drop in the ocean, which brings this awareness, is essential. And it does have effects. It does contribute to the fact that, you know, we hear uh, a, a decreasing level of ex hyped expectations from industry, expectations also from big industry and from decision makers um, at government level and at European Commission level are now more and more commensurate with what we can actually deliver. This is a very important trend, but we have to keep uh, uh, doing that. Fortunately, most of the community, if not all of the community, what I mentioned before was just a, a very specific exception. Most of the community is doing that. So we are, you know, communicating this and uh, that's the foundation of the possibility for future developments. All right. So let's talk about the flagship. Um, the manifesto was signed by thousands of scientists in 2016, I guess. And the quantum flagship happened in 2018. But I guess there's a lot of work in between these two things. So how, how, do you, how, how did the flagship actually come about? Well, <clears throat> it was uh, taken up by the commission, by the European Commission, that there could be a perspective there. But uh, uh, and what we insisted very much since the beginning was uh, it should not be some chunk of money given to anybody, but it should be up for competition. And so uh, the question is, how do you structure the calls, the competitive calls for distributing the money based on which strategic agenda, based on which <coughs> uh, milestones and so on. And so this time which passed in between was exactly for structuring that, discussing with the community. Um, you know, there were expert groups established for that. And then the calls were written by the commission based on this input. And then they were published and people would apply and they would be selected by peer review. And each of these steps, of course, implies, you know, a certain delay with respect to, I don't know, Google taking a, a few billion dollars in, in, in their hand and moving on. 
but this is a very valuable delay which we want to happen because in this way we can ensure that everybody who has competence participates and not just someone who is connected to someone else who is connected to decision makers. That's really the strong foundation for this. And this is also one important difference, this open competition aspect that we set up since the beginning with respect to the other flagships. And it is the reason of my previous answer to, the, to what was discussed. In fact, we see that now in Horizon Europe, the next framework program for research and innovation of the European Union, quantum flagship is going on and the other two are actually <coughs> essentially coming to a conclusion. All right. Um, in, in working for this, uh, did you find the European bureaucracy and, and governance better than you expected or worse than you expected? Well, I uh, knew it when I started doing this. I knew the European bureaucracy since um, already a good amount of time because I'm working with European projects since 25 years in this field. Um, and um, I would say it is much better than what one uh, normally expects. Um, it is certainly uh, orders of magnitude better than German bureaucracy uh, because it really allows to have a unified framework and strategic planning and there is a very uh, high degree of involvement of experts and the community in you know, determining the, the future directions. And there is a lot of transparency in the processes. Um, and also, uh, it, European money is in the community also considered, say, high-quality money because it comes with a much higher flexibility in its use than you know, other kinds of, of funding that, that we experience. So, yes, uh, that's, uh, you know... About among public uh, sources of money, it's about the best that, that there is. So around this same time of the flagship coming together, um, Brexit happened. And, and, and England, like on the one hand, in England, you had these people who basically uh, always point at European governance and say, oh, this is all terrible and this is why we have to leave. But uh, on the other hand, you have the one of the countries with the biggest quantum investments in, in Europe at the time, Who, who left this this sort of program? How much of a blow was this? And in the end, um, how much does does research in England suffer from 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 Brexit? Very much on both sides. Brexit happened uh, the day I still remember, in which some of the protagonists of of the Brexit uh, of the sorry of the UK uh, quantum science were meeting with us in Munich for planning yet another project, and there was just consternation from their side. And this uh, goes up to this uh, uh, to this day. It is no mystery that uh, you know sci most scientists were remainers in uh, in in the UK because, of course, you know uh, you know building walls and and uh, you know uh, cutting down cooperation is a, a big blow not only for our field but for science in general. What we are doing now is as much as possible to try and keep cooperation with them both in the context of Iranet, this uh, big uh, consortium of uh, funding agencies, as well as with involvement in uh, as many as possible of the calls from the flagship, especially the low technology readiness level calls, and other initiatives of cooperation, because, you know, uh, I mean, as Google once put it, Hartmut Neven from Google, the quantum race is not a race between different, uh, you know, countries or companies competing with each other, each one sitting on their rocket like the space race, it's a race uh, between humankind and nature. And we can get it only if we cooperate on that. So this is why very clearly from both sides, the UK scientific community and the European scientific community, we do all we can to engage and involve them. Yeah. 
All right. Um, so the flagship 7.5 billion euro investment sounds sounds very large. And it, I mean, it is a large scientific project, but it is spread across all of the European Union. So none of the labs that, that get this funding, for none of them, it will be their main source of, of funding. Um, and the individual member country investments are also crucially important. Uh, in, 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 in Is this an advantage or a disadvantage that the European Union sort of has this money to influence the direction, but not completely. There's still a lot of uh, local um, control as well. It is an advantage, actually, 7.5 billion euro, euros, like the initial billion euros was half from the Commission, half from member states. And now it's uh, more or less two and a half from the Commission and the rest from member states. And so the point is that, I mean, it's bottom up. So the as I said before, the strategic agenda comes from the community. So whenever the commission asks, what should we be doing? It is the same people advising them that advise the governments in the national uh, uh, initiatives. And so this is why there is a synergy. It's not member states imposing an agenda on the commission or the commission imposing an agenda on member states. is the same fact-knowledge-based uh, uh, ideas and, and agendas which come to sort of shape all these programs. And it is essential that there is this interface because in this way, we can leverage the resources. As you said, you know, an experimental group working on this, uh, this field, they use their existing infrastructure, which is funded you know, by their university, by their uh, uh, local state, by the German Science Foundation in Germany, by the National Science Foundation in other countries. And it is this which <coughs> is make, makes it possible that you know, these technologies are developed, not just in quotes, with these 7.5 billion, but leveraging more money, which is what makes us competitive with the very large investments from the US and from, and from China. So this is our strength, the diversification and the synergy, which is based on a common vision. And this is the same reason why the Quantum Manifesto was signed by everybody, because as I said before, I didn't invent anything. I just used the control C, control V function of my computer, copy and paste. All right. Then uh, you, you already mentioned uh, uh, the US. I, I, I mean, I, as a casual op, uh, 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 person who just consumes the news on, on quantum things, I saw that uh, uh, Jacob Taylor was kind of uh, uh, in, a, in, in the news as, as one of the people to push the quantum agenda from like 2017 on uh, uh, in, in the US. Um, would, I mean, you have papers with him, interestingly. Um, would you say that he is a counterpart to you in the US, or how, how do you how do you see this? Uh, not directly, because uh, uh, Jacob Taylor was appointed as assistant director of the Quantum Initiative in the Office of Science and Technology Policy of the United States uh, President. Um, so he was a sort of a government representative, and he fittingly in some of the meetings in which we were negotiating a couple of years ago before the pandemic uh, cooperation between US and EU on, uh, on quantum, he fittingly told me uh, that uh, he was in that context a government representative. There are also non-government representatives. And uh, he jokingly uh, told me that I was a quasi-government representative in the sense that, uh, you know, I'm not a government uh, person. I uh, sort of uh, represent uh, I, the voice of the community in a sense, um, and But of course, there is a, a lot of synergy, as we said before, between what governments here do and what the community advises. And so in this sense, what the community says has uh, carries a lot of weight 
but not by itself, but by the fact that our governments are actually listening. And so in this sense, it's a slightly different dynamics than in the US. In the US, I would say the people from the community which pushed uh, uh, um, this um, were among the people. There was, for instance, uh, Chris Monroe, who is an entrepreneur. He is the, the founder of IonQ uh, in the US, and he was sort of, you know, uh, advocating for quantum in Congress and with different decision makers. Uh, instead, Jake Taylor was, uh, who is a very dear colleague, you know, I, 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 I had papers with him since he was, he was a student at Harvard. Um, he, he has been playing a very important role as really the person set up for gov- from government to lead this. This is, again, an advantage in the US that as a, they, take, they took scientists, a scientist, they, his, his uh, um, successor is Charlie Tahan, who also has a, a past track record as a scientist in quantum and now is the director of the quantum office at the White House. I met him a couple of weeks ago in, in our Cologne trip to, to, to Washington, D.C. and New York. And, <clears throat> I mean, somehow this tradition is also great that they have one unified coordination office. This is something which we are actually missing in Germany, and we are very much hoping this was among the recommendations which our expert group gave to uh, Chancellor Merkel. The Chancellor said, wonderful, uh, let's do it like this, and her two uh, ministers, Altmaier and Karliczek, avoided implementing, so that we are missing this in Germany, and hopefully it can come in this legislature. So we can still learn from the from the US in terms of, of, of uh, having a better governance of, of research uh, in Germany, maybe. Well, w- this aspect of coordination, yep. there are other aspects of governance which work very well instead, which is the, uh, uh, you know, clear, um, you know, listening, which the, the German government and also the European Commission do towards the, uh, Euro- the scientific community in terms of, you know, the research agenda. We have a, a European research agenda. We also have a, a, a research agenda for Germany, which will be presented, by the way, tomorrow in the, in the Quantum Congress in Berlin, which has been formulated. It is endorsed. It is taken up by the government, but it was formulated by the whole community. So this kind of tight cooperation, we don't have anything to, to, to envy from the U.S., but let's say the unified coordination is indeed something which where we could have some improvement here. One other question about the difference between Europe and the US. In principle, we don't have the big, like none of the big tech companies uh, that sort of really have, in some sense, the biggest uh, uh, monopolies on, on computing power and uh, uh, innovation. Uh, we don't have any of them directly in Europe, right? Is this fair to say? Does this mean that the US... Or, alone through this fact uh, will always be part of the of the quantum value chain and 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 Europe has to work harder for it yes i think that europe has to work harder and fortunately europe is working harder one important uh, aspect is the chips act which is just a, <clears throat> a law by the european um, uh, uh, parliament on classical and standard chips, which also will contain an important uh, uh, chapter and line of activities on quantum chips. I mean, in the European Parliament uh, two weeks ago to discuss that, and I'm going again next week. Uh, um, they uh, want to propose to invite me to the uh, official hearing in Parliament mid-July on this to discuss quantum chips, because this is really a way in which <coughs> Europe can sort of work harder to catch up and not reproduce a delay and perhaps a dependency on quantum chips in the future as we had in the past and we are having now on classical semiconductor chips. We want to change that and the Commission is aware of that and the Parliament is aware of that and we are moving in that direction. Yeah. 
So let's let's maybe quickly move to the topic of quantum startups. Um, are you involved in any quantum startups as a board member or founder? Well, as a founder, so I constantly turn down offers to be involved as board members in different startups because um, I think that if I would sort of work, I would commit myself to work to protect and support the interest of specific startups, this would undermine <coughs> the general credibility of the role that I am playing uh, <coughs> at European and national level. Um, on the other hand, and so also I'm a founder, so uh, we have a, a quantum startup which came out of my institute and uh, led by a postdoc in another institute, uh, now former postdoc because he's the CEO in, in another institute in Ulich and also together with the University of Padua. And there I am trying to keep a certain distance in the sense that I am kind of scientifically advising that, but uh, you know the, the real daily business is carried out by, by our CEO because I think it's a sort of this distinction of roles can only be, again, healthy and useful um, to avoid that, you know, in any way, that's the most precious value that in any way, sort of the impartiality, which needs to belong into advising governments and, and providing scientific input, uh, be undermined indeed by, by some specific interests. Um, so how do you see the roles of, diff like, so we have, we have university research, We have research within big tech and we have startups. Um, how do you see the, uh, uh, these different efforts to push quantum uh, uh, computers or quantum technologies to commercial viability? I see that they are complementary to each other in the following sense, that university research is <clears throat> still experimental, more at the low technology readiness level scale in the sense of developing new ideas and you know carrying them to maturity in the lab until they can be taken up commercially. And then <clears throat> the role of startups is to really, you know, develop components uh, uh, both on the hardware and software side in order to make the systems possible. And at the moment, uh, there are some startups which are, you know, very ambitiously tackling uh, also the aspect of system integration and full stack uh, approach to quantum computing, but certainly still a very important role for big industry can and should be to play the role of system integration in order to make sure that we can have these, you know, <clears throat> all integrated uh, devices which can be made commercially available. Uh, building on the enabling technologies on the components delivered by startups, in some cases also with full stack, uh, um, you know, products developed by startups, and also building on the expertise which continues to be grown in universities, including, of course, in our consortium ML4Q here. Yeah. Um, so do you think that in the end, uh, for these startups, uh, there's more, what, what if in a startup, what is more important to, to build an IP portfolio to just, you know, develop some technologies and actually have patents, uh, on them and, and, and be, become valuable this way? Or do you think that it's in the end, just developing a team that can actually solve certain tasks or, or, you know, build a full stack quantum computer And, and that this team becomes the value of the company. Where, you, where do you see the more value? Well, both of them, it depends on the, uh, on the <clears throat> obviously, it depends on the business model, it depends a little bit on the field. There are a lot of startups which, uh, you know, uh, provide consultancy and expertise to uh, translate, for instance, problems of interest for big industry into quantum programming language, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> and there is a lot of value in there. But there is also a lot of value in, you know, creating own IP 
and you know owning own devices and capability of producing those devices at the moment we see in europe that quantum computers are being uh, produced and sold only by startups. There is no big companies such as such as IBM or, or Google, which is not yet commercializing quantum computers, but which is in Europe doing something like this. So it is really the startups which are able to do that. And uh, so this complementarity needs to go on. Those are two dimensions which we need to move on with. All right. Um, so to what extent then... Um is it the goal of, of these startups to be uh, uh, bought by big tech or do you think a lot of them will be able to stand on their own? And what, 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 would you, what advice would you give to founders? Oh, well, I would say um, wait and see for, for a while before selling to big, uh, to big companies um, because it can really be that value develops uh, very strongly in this field and, you know, selling too easily may not be the, the best strategy. Um, certainly, I mean, uh, in startups, exit is one important question that you asked since the beginning. Uh, so to whom do you sell in the end? Let's say our hope is that uh, there will be not so many exits with European IP towards extra-European companies. Um, and actually, the commission is getting equipped to try to, to counter that tendency including with a European quantum fund, which is being considered in order to support, you know, uh, European startups to stay in Europe. And similar could happen with uh, uh, analog initiatives like, uh, like uh, uh, agencies like Sprint here in Germany. And so in this sense, I would say that uh, probably there is a lot of room for development. And uh, I, I mean, hiring to, to sell is probably not the best strategy at the moment because the field is still developing. Now, of course, you know, in the long term, you know, a quantum winter might be coming. How many startups will survive it? That's an open question. And I don't think that anybody has a solid advice on that. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe one, one, one last question on this topic. So now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of representation of, of, of my generation. Of I, I did my PhD and uh, finished my PhD in 2018. And of course, some of my friends now are, are starting startups and I, I can, I, I have like different, different to other generations before me. I think I really have this, this option of always going into this, this, uh, startup market, which let's say it wasn't the case in, in 2012, right? Um, should we do more at the level of education of masters and PhD students to, um, familiarize them with, with ideas of economics, but also with like a course on IP and so on? To prepare us for for understanding this 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 environment, because I have to say personally, I don't feel like I really understand uh, uh, this world. I think this would be extremely valuable. Um, I, I myself had to learn some of these things <clears throat> very late, of course, in my in my life, because now you know, even though I'm not involved in the daily business, you know, when we when we founded, I had to sort of get a, 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 a rough understanding of what what these things are. And certainly it could be very valuable for students and, and young colleagues, um, including because, you know, even if the quantum startup in which you are uh, uh, involved, uh, <clears throat> who knows, maybe it will not survive, uh, because of course it will be a, a small fraction of them which will survive just by definition, but the experience gained there um, is going to be valuable uh, in a lot of other contexts. And very much in general, you know, now regardless of uh, the success of quantum startups, you know, startup culture is developing in, in Europe, and this is something which can provide very good opportunities. And so getting experience 
in the quantum uh, domain in this is anyway something which can be very important and useful beyond the quantum domain in, in, in future days. And I mean, we speak here now in the context of ML4Q. Do you think we should even push more as ML4Q to, um, to make this connection um, uh, between the research world, especially for, for young researchers, to just, uh, you know, have some connection to have like startup meets uh, in the area and, and so on? So I think that some connection could be very valuable. On the other hand, you know, ML4Q really is a fundamental science uh, undertaking. And so I do not think that entrepreneurship should be in the focus of ML4Q as a consortium per se. No, no. On the other hand, creating connections with those, uh, for instance, offices in different universities which provide these opportunities and encouraging uh, students and postdocs to participate there, that can certainly be valuable in order to expand possibilities. Yeah. All right. Uh, that uh, I think that uh, I got through a lot of my questions. Uh, Thank you a lot for taking the time and discussing this. I think uh, you are really one of the um, yeah, experts on, on sort of policy of, of, on, and, and quantum lobbying in Europe. So it was really a pleasure for me to talk to you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you for your uh, time, your attention. And uh, let's hope that uh, you know, some people will also get something out of this podcast. Yes. 